Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. As you're building a business and working with clients and vendors and even, you know, just in your everyday life with your family and your loved ones, negotiation plays a huge role. It's simply the matter of getting things done that you want and need to happen in a way that everyone wins. Now, even as important as building your business is, it's really just one small step in the greater journey to build time and money freedom. And that's why we've created the Business Owner's 3-Step cash flow System to help you first keep more of the money you make, then secure and protect your money, and finally turn it into more. Now, today's conversation is going to really hone in on negotiating and deal-making in your business as one of your key investments that you have the most knowledge and control as a way to increase your cash flow from assets. And now we're going to get to learn from one of the most qualified people to possibly teach this skill. His name is Chris Voss, and he's a CEO, author, and negotiation expert. So here's a little bit more about Chris Voss. He's the CEO of the Black Swan Group and author of the national bestseller, Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as if Your Life Depended on It, which was named one of the seven best books on negotiation. A 24-year veteran of the FBI, Chris retired as the lead international kidnapping negotiator. Drawing on his experience in high-stakes negotiation, his company specializes in solving business communication problems using hostage negotiation solutions. Their negotiation methodology focuses on discovering the black swans, which are small pieces of information that have a huge effect on the outcome. Chris and his team have helped companies secure and close better deals, save money, and solve internal communication problems. Chris has also been featured in Time, Business Insider, Entrepreneur, Inc., Fast Company, Fortune, The Washington Post, Success Magazine, Squawk Box, CNN, ABC News, and more. So let's go ahead and dive in. Hi, and welcome back to the Money Advantage Podcast. I'm Rachel Marshall, along with my co-host, Bruce Weiner. Good morning, Bruce. Good morning, Rachel. Um, A very interesting uh, guest today, Chris Voss. His his ability to negotiate is something that every business owner needs to to have in their back pocket. And so I'm really looking forward to adding a lot of value to our business. Absolutely. So today we have a special guest, Chris Voss with us. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Absolutely. We are as well. So let's jump into your backstory. We always like to know a little bit about who you were before all the things that you're known for today, being a negotiation expert and really doing your life work on teaching the art of negotiation. Who were you before all of that? Uh, you know, I think it's, I'm a blue collar guy. I mean, uh, I grew up in the Midwest, small town in the Midwest, uh, son of Richard and Joyce, Mount nice. Pleasant, Iowa. Oh, I'm um, from Minnesota. You said Midwest. Oh. I was going to ask which, which uh, state. Oh, you're from, the, you're from the North country. You know, the, the Vikings <laughs> are up there. Exactly. <laughs> in more ways than one, right? Right, exactly. And Chris, I'm from St. Louis, Missouri, so I'm just right down the river from Mount Pleasant. Yeah, it's the same same basic ballpark or same basic mm-hmm. neighborhood. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I mean, I'm a I'm a there's blue collar Midwestern values everywhere. I mean, I was 
grew up in the Midwest, sort of a figured out, uh, can't do it attitude, pitch in attitude. I think most of the Midwest is a very pitch in culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and but then I spent a, a the majority of my adult professional life was in New York City, uh, in and around the Northeast, but mostly New York City. You know, a year in Boston, uh, um, some time in Washington D.C., which is almost in the Northeast, but not quite. Absolutely, uh, I've lived there too. So yeah, blue collar, blue collar, figured out, pitch in, kind of human being, team, you know, teamwork. Um, always looking to get better at teamwork because when you work really hard at your contribution and making sure that you work hard, sometimes you expect everybody else to work as hard as you do and not everybody does. And, and, you know, teamwork is a, is something I'm getting much more of appreciation of since I'm running my own company. That's excellent. And I love that you bring in teamwork because collaboration is a really huge part of negotiation, which I have learned from you. So um, I know that you also spent some time uh, as being a cop and in the FBI. Tell us a little bit about that journey. Yeah, well, after uh, after I graduated college uh, in, in Iowa State University, then I, went, I became a cop in Kansas City, police officer, Kansas City, Missouri Police Department. I was there for three years, uh, worked on the street, um, enjoyed it, loved it, had a, had a wonderful time. And uh, started looking at federal law enforcement and ended up with the FBI. My first office with the FBI was Pittsburgh, and I was on a SWAT team in the Pittsburgh division. Was there for two years, transferred to New York. Uh, got assigned to the Joint Terrorist Task Force, partners with uh, NYPD. NYPD police detectives were my partners my entire time in New York. Loved working with those guys. And again, blue-collar, hardworking people. And, you know, we made some great cases in New York. I mean, I was the whole time I was uh, in, in, in my whole life attracted to people who liked to work and enjoyed it. So, you mm-hmm. know, it's the cliche, work hard, play hard. But, you know, we we really loved working with each other and we helped each other out a lot and we got some great things done. It's amazing when you start working with people who like to work hard and enjoy it. You can get some spectacular things done, some really spectacular things done. We, it was great when I was in New York. And we talk often about building a life and a business that you love. And so I love that idea of even loving the work that you do and collaboration and being in a team environment is a huge part of that as well. So you also then kind of the terrorism, the hostage negotiation, international kidnapping. Tell us how that happened and what drew you to that in the first place. Well, um, I, by luck, I ended up on the terrorist task force in New York, and it was principally because I'd previously been a police officer. And also, I was originally assigned to their surveillance unit, and I'd been working surveillance in, in Pittsburgh. So I had a combination of stuff that worked out really well. Always wanted to work terrorism. Um, and, in hindsight, uh, hmm. um, I, you know, it was, it was fate, fate would have it. And so we made great cases. I mean, we did spectacular things that, the surveillance team that I was on in New York was the best surveillance unit in the entire FBI at the time. And mm-hmm. we went out on foot in New York City. I mean, when I first got to New York, and this was before communications were secure, you know, the they, the bad guys could turn on a police scanner and listen to us talking on the radio. So we had to talk in code. Oh, wow. And, uh, you know, you had to be prepared to war, end up in the worst neighborhood in New York City uh, alone. Uh, on foot at night. 
And so really wow. learning how to, how to get by in tough neighborhoods, you know, and I'm a, I'm clearly a very Caucasian dude and I would end up in non-Caucasian neighborhoods. Sure. And, you know, have to get by with not being in touch with anybody. So learned a lot of uh, what I consider to be street smarts in my time in New York. And it was great. Had, had, had a great time. What's the one thing that you think people would be surprised about your experience on a, ter- on a terror- terrorism task force? Wow. One thing. Um, wow. Many things, apparently. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, uh, working terrorism is is, uh, is a really unique challenge. I mean, these days, uh, the Bureau is always taking a lot of heat. If you're working terrorism, you're working groups that, by definition, are trying to hide crime behind some portion of the Constitution. They're organizing themselves either behind, theoretically, either behind religion or politics because there are constitutional protections there when they are, in fact, criminals. Um, you know, they're looking for another shield from law enforcement. So it's, it's always really touchy. You're really very careful the whole time as you should be. Um, but the, the great care that the Bureau goes through to protect people's rights, whose only attention is to commit crimes, I think is a little bit lost on the public. I think that it's something that sets the United States apart, even though we're not perfect about that is that even in, in things that uh, we would say, uh, well, of course we have to overstep the boundaries occasionally. Um, most of our constitution would say, no, 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 we should never overstep the boundaries. And we pretty well stick to that, I would imagine. We stick to it very closely. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of people in the government that, that took their oath to the constitution quite seriously. Mm-hmm. And I will tell you, and, you know, in hindsight, and, and I don't want us to, I know we don't plan to get derailed on our entire political conversation, but we had uh, terrorism trials in the New York City and civilian court in the 1990s, and the world didn't come to an end. We didn't have to go to Guantanamo Bay. We, we respected everybody's rights. Um, everybody got rid of their Miranda rights. You know, they testified or not voluntarily. But the phenomenal thing about it all was we had a lot of Muslims testifying against Muslims in open civilian court. And the Muslims who testified against other Muslims testified voluntarily. They didn't testify under threat of arrest. The vast majority of our witnesses were voluntary. And nearly to a person afterwards, they all came to, up to us. Because in trial preparation, these guys used to say, what do you want us to say? How do you want us to testify? And uh, uh, both us and our prosecutors um uh, Rob Kazami was one of our prosecutors, and he is now in the Southern District of New York leading up many of the uh, 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 investigations that involve the current White House. Rob Kazami is an honorable man um, and, and a good man. And Rob Kazami and Pat Fitzgerald, who was uh, did prosecuted uh, and locked up the governors in Illinois as, as uh, the uh, United States Attorney uh, for Chicago. Pat was a young prosecutor, and um, um, I'll think of the, our third prosecutor's name in a minute. But every one of the witnesses would look at these guys and say, how do you want us to testify? And our prosecutors would look at them and say, tell the truth. Hmm. And they would say, no, 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 no. Well, what do you want us to say? And um, these, our prosecutor, you know, Pat, Rob would say, tell the truth. We're not prepping you to do anything other than tell the truth. And after the trial was over, the witnesses came up to us and to a person said, we thought you were kidding. Oh, wow. 
but we now realize that all you ever wanted was for us to tell the truth. And we're, we're kind of, it's not like that in our country. Yeah. It's a, it, my wife, wow. my wife has traveled internationally for 17 and a half years. And, and then I've also had the, the pleasure of not only traveling, but then also having uh, international business groups here in, in the United States. And I'm also, I'm always um, sensitive to other cultures and that they, they, they don't realize the way we do things in the United States is pretty transparent and just straightforward. And, they're, and, I, and I think people are always surprised at that. So we have a system of justice that's worth being proud of. Yes. That's, that's excellent. And I love that you shared that story as well. So in your book, Never Split the Difference, you talk about a lot of stories and then you bring out the points that you're communicating and the tactics and strategies that you use. What for you stands out as the one biggest highlighting story that kind of launched you into this negotiation work? Uh, you know, it's hard to say that it was any one story. I mean, um, I worked at kidnapping. There were two successive kidnappings that I worked in the Philippines, both of which are in the book. Um, the first one we worked, uh, we just, our counter negotiation strategy was empathy. Every, every counter offer we used, the counter offer was what we now refer to as tactical empathy. And, and we teach business people now that now, you know, your counter offer should be empathy. Mm-hmm. Your counter offer shouldn't be an argument. Your counter offer shouldn't be a counter offer. You know, your counter offer needs to be empathy. You'd be shocked at how far you could get. So the, the first, uh, kidnapping where there was a $10 million ransom demand through the entirety of it, our counter offer was empathy. The ransom demand went away. The hostage walked away. You know, I wouldn't even refer to it as an escape. The mm. kidnapper's security gotten so lax, they checked on him so seldom that he actually physically walked, just walked away. Oh, wow. And after it was over, with this counteroffer to a terrorist who was a sociopath, a murderer, and a rapist, and a killer, I mean, bad to the mm. bone, straight out of the movie, sociopath, terrorist. Yeah. Um, the terrorist called the negotiator that I was coaching back up on the phone. He was a local Philippine police officer. And said to him, have you been promoted? You're, you're really good at what you do. Mm. You know, I don't know what you said to me on the phone, which was empathy, mm. but he didn't know that. Mm-hmm. He said they should promote you. Wow. And so that was, you know, that was a huge turning point, especially to have uh, the negotiator on the other side call our guy because they knew they were going to probably cross paths again. And what he was basically saying, we're good. You know, I'm, if we ever cross paths again, I'm willing to talk to you. We're good. We have a good relationship, which is, should be the goal of every negotiation, regardless of the outcome. The other side should be willing to talk to you again. They should be willing to, they should feel like that they were so respected and heard that despite the fact that they didn't get anything, you know, they're still good. So then we, um, sure, a few months after that, uh, we got into another negotiation with another factor, faction of the group. Mm. They had multiple hostages. The first case, he only had one hostage. The second case, they had they had multiple. They had three Americans, and they had probably ballpark. I don't know the number of Filipinos, about ten, because through the course of that kidnapping, they killed some of the Filipino hostages, took mm. other Filipino hostages, killed other Filipino hostages. Oh it my was, goodness! It was it was, and, and they executed an American about three weeks in. To the first part of that case, you know, they, oh, wow. they executed him. 
Mm. So it was an entirely, entirely different case. Oh, sure. On so many levels. And super challenging and tense and hostile. Yeah, all of it, everything. Um, and we had moments where we got ahead. We had we used negotiation through the media. We used media statements, which did nothing but hold them accountable. Not that didn't call them names in the media. You know, understood what the currency really was, what, what was really at stake. Which was, if the terrorists go to the media, then the, then the commodity is media. It's not money, no matter what they mm, say. Okay. And, you know what's. What's the commodity at stake at any given time? You got to, it's rarely is it what the other side is saying, whether it's a business negotiation, whether it's a terrorist negotiation, it's rarely what they're specifically asking for. Hmm. But then That's at the end idea. of it all, we didn't get the hostages out. Um, the kidnappers reneged on an agreement with the family's representative. And then two out of three of the remaining hostages were killed by friendly fire and a botched rescue mission. Hmm. Now, at the end of that case, that's when I just, you know, I thought we did everything we knew how to do. We have to get better. That's when I started to collaborate with Harvard. I, you know, I approached the program on negotiation at Harvard, said, Hey, I'm an FBI hostage negotiator. You guys want to talk? You know, my old business card got me into a lot of conversations. Oh, I, I'm sure. I remember when I met Bob Manukin, I, I talked my, my Bob Manukin was the head of the program on negotiation at Harvard, still is. And, um, I got my boss's permission to go to one of their executive negotiation training sem seminars, which, you know, anybody could go. All you got to do is pay and register. Okay. And so I, I got up there with the express purpose of waiting till the head of the program came walking by and then hand him my business card and wait to see what he said next. And if your nice. business card says FBI hostage negotiator, you generally get people's attention. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Sure. And you earn those credentials. And so I handed Bob the card and, and it's, he went, oh, really? we should talk. And we nice. found out that we were in complete agreement on the definition of empathy. We completely agreed that empathy was not sympathy. Empathy is not compassion. Empathy is not agreement. And in Bob's book, Beyond Winning, which still has the best chapter on empathy I've ever read. Oh, wow. It's a book on negotiation principally for lawyers. And the second chapter is called The Tension Between Empathy and Assertiveness. And it is an absolutely brilliant read on the application of empathy. And mm. Bob flat out states in that book, empathy is not about being nice. You know, they want mm. un completely understanding the other side, which feels very nice to them. You know, using empathy is a compassionate thing to do, but it is not compassion. You do not have to have compassion to use empathy. And I had, I had just been through that in the Philippines. I had no compassion whatsoever for these terrorists. Mm -hmm. And I used empathy with them. I had no compassion for them. I had no agreement. There was no common ground. It is the most powerful skill if you understand that it's simply articulating your understanding of the other side's position, especially the stuff that you would otherwise agree with, uh, argue with, don't argue, articulate. Mm, okay. And it becomes insanely an insanely powerful tool of influence. And if you can define it like that, then it's a negotiation tool that you can, is unlimited in its use. So. 
you would think that in a negotiation, when two people disagree about anything, maybe it's the price of your um, your program, or maybe it's you're working with a, a team member on the team and you see differently about how to solve a particular problem, it seems like empathy would probably be the last thing on your mind. Right. Um, why is that? And why are so many people not good at negotiation? Well, because empathy is not is the last thing on their mind. I mean, that's really mm-hmm. it. You know, and it it's a, almost a cliche because everybody knows that Stephen Covey's advice from the seven habits of highly effective people is seek first to understand, then be understood. Yeah, yeah. And we think that that means that if we understand internally, in point of fact, it's demonstrate understanding in order to be understood. Demonstrate your understanding mm. of the other side's perspective, especially the stuff that you want to argue with. Just flat out say it. If, if you're arguing over price, then you say to the other side, you think we're too expensive. So it say seems, it directly. Say, just you know, call out the elephant in the room. Mm-hmm. It, it, the, no one ever said that the most effective strategy for getting rid of the elephant in the room was to ignore the elephant. Right. <laughs> Except we all want to do that, but that's not effective. It, we won't. We want to do two things. One of two things: we want to ignore the elephant or say there is no elephant. That's not an elephant, <laughs> right? You know, that's in point of fact what we do. If the elephant in the room is that the other side thinks you're 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 too expensive, then call, you think we're too expensive. Now, the truth of the matter is, and where the negotiation really begins, is if they think you're too expensive, what they're saying is. You're not delivering what they want because Mm -hmm. if you deliver what people want and it's your business philosophy to always over deliver, which is what our business philosophy is. Absolutely. Now it's one thing to pay lip service to that. And it's another thing uh, to to actually mean it. Mm -hmm. You know, we hired a video company in Dallas recently to shoot video for us. And the audio was ridiculously problematic. Oh, and we came back to them and they said, that's oh, an easy fix. Your video, your video editor just doesn't know how to fix it. It's an easy fix. And afterwards, I thought, if somebody has a problem with our product, we say, we'll fix it for you. Mm-hmm. And we went back and forth and, and I got confirmation from the outside that it wasn't an easy fix for multiple video editors. I'm sorry. And finally, you know, they said, uh, the company said, well, you don't have to pay us our balance, which I wasn't going to, I wanted my money back, let alone not paying them their balance. But then finally, when I got the, uh, the storage devices that the, the video was on, I chased it for a while. I, I emailed them and I said, you know, you kept telling us this is an easy fix. How about if I send you the storage device, if it's so easy, you fix it and I'll go ahead and pay you the balance. Hmm. And their email response to me was, we don't do post-production. You know, so uh, if, if, you, if you live the philosophy over deliver, then you should never, 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 never cut your price. Now, there Absolutely. may be a slight adjustment in what you deliver. You know, if, if somebody says we're too expensive, our response is, it sounds like the value is just not there for you. Mm. I mean, no one, if you truly deliver what you say you're going to deliver and you actually over deliver, then never cut your price. Maybe you need to adjust how you deliver, 
But, you know, nobody that we consult with, we do not let anybody cut their price. I mean, there's there's a whole slew of reasons why you should never cut your price. And another another thing, too, is often is you are um, what we call the fool in the game. People are trying to get you to cut your price when they're never going to do business with you. They need you for a competing bid. Mm. And smelling that out quickly is what really we, we're focused more now on helping businesses sniff out fake opportunities and not wasting their time on them. Oh, I love that. Um, because, you know, there are two things that are simultaneously there. Only about 10 to 20% of the people that you run across really want to do business with you. Now, of that 10 to 20%, they want to pay you every dime you want. It is an abundant world. I mean, it is Absolutely. a massively abundant world. Mm-hmm. So the challenge is focusing on that 10 to 20%. And, you know, there's some real clear earmarks early on of people that are wasting your time and sniffing that out. And, and a lot of people, especially in the early, at whatever stage in your business, it seems very counterintuitive to turn business away, to refuse opportunities. But if they were never opportunities at all, you're not refusing opportunities. You're avoiding having your time wasted. And, and that is one of the so good. principal things that we focus on now with with all negotiators that we cut, uh, coach. That's Getting, fantastic. I mean, I really love- 10 loved- to 15 minutes. I love what you're sharing on that because I think a lot of times we can, as just business owners, we can be excited about a particular prospect or a particular um, consultant that we're working with. And we think that that's the right fit and we try to make something happen. And if you are going in the wrong direction, you are expending your energy and you're not focused on you know, your unique ability. You're not really serving out of your best capacity and you're not being profitable. So all of those right. things are right. causing you to not be successful. Right. So so there's so much that applies from the terrorist side and the kidnapping side over into business. And I'm just seeing how profound that is. Let's talk through some of the strategies and tactics that you most commonly would use to show that empathy and then to really be able to build bridges and get things done collaboratively so that everyone gets what they want or um, or the other side gives you what you want. You, you talk about that in the book as well. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, um, let the other side talk first. I mean, everybody wants to make their sales pitch. Everybody wants to make their value proposition. Everybody wants to make their argument. Let's pretend that whatever the opportunity is in front of you is a legitimate opportunity. Now, and actually the odds are against that it is. Um, but the Challenger Sale is, is a book that talks about this a lot and they ran some data and, and their numbers are low, but they said at least 20% of your opportunities are, are false opportunities. Hmm. Now that they, they came to that number by surveying business people and basically in some substance asked them, how often are you lying to a business about whether you want to do business with them? Mm-hmm. Interesting. You know, and, and the excuses are you're doing due diligence or you're looking for free consulting. And if people will admit to lying to businesses 20% of the time, there's no way that number's high. People don't claim to lie more than they do. Right. They claim <laughs> to lie less than they do. Right. <laughs> right. And they're, they're coming up with 20%. 
And so it's at least 20% of your opportunities. Now, I will tell you one of the uh, number one, that number's got to be higher because people are lying about how much they lie. (laughs) And then number two, there's a lot of opportunities where people think they're open-minded, but they've actually already made up their mind. There's a business-to-business survey out there that says that before um, a buyer contacts a vendor uh, or provider of a service, 50% of them have already made up their mind. So before, because people are leery of salespeople, people are leery of marketers, people are leery of company representatives Mm -hmm. because they're afraid they're going to get sold. They're afraid they're going to get conned into something they don't want. So half of them will completely make up their mind before they talk to anybody as a defense mechanism. Mm. And then there's another survey out there that says if their mind isn't made up, it's at least 80% of the way made up. Wow, that's fascinating. So, you know, by definition, there's no such thing as a, as a open mind. Mm. And if you look at it from the other side, if you get interested in something and you're thinking about buying something, what do you do? You go on the internet, you Google it, you start collecting data. You mm-hmm. start asking people you trust questions. You start asking yeah. people about their experiences. By and large, in doing your research, you are starting down the decision path so that you're no longer open-minded. You were open-minded when you started your research. Right. But you're not open-minded anymore. You you talk to people you trust. You you made impressions. You made initial judgments. No one is open-minded. Open mind does not exist. What's the point? The point is that as a provider of a service, as a business, whatever you provide, you need to get a quick diagnosis of how far down the path they are. And if they're talking to you, one of two things are true. Either they're never going to do business with you or there's stuff about you they love. Now, let's say there's seven reasons to do business with you. They're not going to be in love with all seven. They'll be in love with two or three. Now, picking the wrong one to start with is a game of Russian roulette. Oh sure. What you need to where you need to go early on is find out what they love about you and focus on delivering that aspect, which then gets you into your what's valuable about you early on and also how you tailor what they need so that they will stay in love. And something as simple as saying to somebody right off the bat, seems like you've given this a lot of thought. Now, by definition, that's going to be true. And they're going to feel like you're appreciating and respecting them because they have, in fact, given a lot of thought. And they would love to tell you about it. But almost every other salesperson they encounter won't let them talk. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Because we're trying to outwit or out uh, rationalize or stay in the rational mind and use arguments when, I mean, Purely, it's really an emotional decision that they're making usually to solve rational needs. But there's a lot of feeling components of that. And empathy is certainly a huge part. So it sounds like, so first you're talking about making sure that they talk first. They want to express all of the research and the, the knowledge that they have. So where do you go from there? Well, you, you, first of all, you got to confirm with them that you've heard it properly. I mean, this is the... Empathy is really just summarizing the other side's position. And having the opportunity to express themselves, it's, it's probably a toss-up as to which people enjoy more, 
expressing themselves or the feeling that what they said was heard. Mm. I mean, we all have a lot of thoughts that we would love to express, but we just don't want to waste our time. You know, I I read an, an article probably about three or four years ago, the head of marketing at Facebook was sick of dealing with Hollywood because he couldn't stand not being listened to. Hmm. I mean, by and large, and what, what is this really? This is people saying, you know, the cliche question, hey, what's keeping you up at night? And then not listening to the answer. You know, hmm. what, what problem are you trying to solve? Most people are taught that if they answer that question, a person on the other side is not going to listen. Yeah. You know, you, you take a look at um, Jordan Bel- Belfort's book, um, uh, The Way of the Wolf. Um, I'm, and I'm asking myself, how does a guy who owes old people and innocent people $100 million in restitution, you know, if he owes $100 million in restitution, then he made more than that. So what mm-hmm. was it that that he was doing that calmed these people? He made people feel heard and listened to, but no matter what, he sold them the same thing all the time. Hmm. You know, you take, you take a look at um, the straight line selling, if you will. You know, no matter what any prospect said to any of Jordan Belfort or any of their people, their answer and his sales approach is buy my widget, buy my widget as is where is. And, and the, the other reason why he owes a hundred million dollars in restitution is because he also didn't deliver. Mm. You know, he, he went to jail for not delivering, mm-hmm. but what, but what was it? He made people feel hurt. He made people feel appreciated made him feel listened to. And then he kind of hell out of him. Uh, if he didn't con him, he wouldn't owe a hundred million dollars in restitution. <laughs> <laughs> Which, again, has got to be a low number. There's no way that he stole less than that. Right. But, so what was it? Um, having, making people feel that they were attended to. Making people feel that they'd been hurt. I mean, that's, it's that powerful that a, somebody who sells snake oil can make that much money. Imagine if your product is actually valuable, how well you could do. Oh, yeah. By being simply emotionally responsive to people. And, and it seems stupid because you being emotionally responsive doesn't really have anything to do with what your product or service is. You know, it's, it's getting the product or service to them. You know, if you, if you sell air conditioner repair, you know, the fact that you showed empathy to your customer doesn't impact your ability to repair air conditioners. But it does impact your ability to make people want you to come in and repair their air conditioners. So it's, it's an interesting kind of a disconnect between mm-hmm. your, you know, your attentiveness, your customer service, your, your customer um, appreciation operation, mm-hmm. and your ability to deliver. Those are two different things. So what, and you need both. So everything you, you, you're saying seems to be... A, a normal self-aware person should be intuitive to to be able to do this. But yet, I think I do this at times, and other times I I probably fall off of this. How do you how do you consistently do this in front of people? Do you do you pr- 
practice? Do you role play? Do you just make it top of the mind? How do you train people in this? Small stakes practice for high stakes performance. I mean, how you practice it and you, you made a couple of interesting observations, you know, in that question that are, that are completely true. Uh, and, it, and it does take practice. I mean, empathy is, a, is, is an unlimited skill. Emotional intelligence, it's been pretty much established. And we can continue to build our emotional intelligence, our EQ, at least through our mid-80s. And, and my guess is on the, that they've said through our mid-80s is because, you know, 85 is a new 65. Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody is rocking and rolling and they're, con- you know, CEO and selling you know, they're 85 year old water skiers, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of where for the moment our physical capabilities are starting to wear down. Mm -hmm. An 85 year old vibrant business person is common these days. Mm -hmm. And so that's why, you know, they say we can improve our IQ, IEQ until about 85. It's a perishable skill. If you stop exercising the EQs, Neurosynapses in your brain, they stop firing. How do you how do you stay sharp with your Starbucks person, with your Lyft driver, with the uh, the waiter or waitress in um, the diner? I mean, the small stakes practice, and the great thing about practicing this in your small stakes practice is the people around you are going to love it. I mean, they just and it's it's so so much of it is stupidly simple. We're we're training a company in Virginia probably about three years ago. We go to the local diner. We're training them on these verbal observations, and we refer to them as labels, but it's just a verbal observation. It's it's actually um, deceptively simple. You know, like I said before, verbal observation seems like you're giving us a lot of thought. A good verbal observation starts with "it seems like," "it sounds like," "it looks like," "it feels like." Because that engages people in a very, very intentional way. There's some words that are specifically selected for that. There are words that are specifically left out. I mean, it's it's deceptive on how precise it is. Anyway, we walk into this diner. This young lady, I don't know how old she was. Some 17, 19, probably 19. Tatted up. She's got tats, tattoos, blue-collar looking, Caucasian chick. Diner in Virginia, got a facial piercing. I can't remember if it was some through her eyelids, some through her lips, some through her nose. She had at least one. But tough looking chick, right? You know, and on the surface, you know, you might expect maybe potentially a bad home life. You know, who knows what her upbringing is looked on based, the book based on its cover. Mm-hmm. And so one of the guys that we're with is, but she's just, she's very warm. She's very sweet. She's displaying a lot of competence. Hmm. She's got a clear awareness of the diner and everybody that's in it. And uh, the guy, uh, one of the guys says, seems like you've been doing this for a long time. And shoots a smile and a smirk at me as if, all right, so you told us to label, you know, I'll just label this, this tough looking waitress and she'll glare at me or something. And she launches into a story about how her mother was a waitress and what a great waitress her mother was. And the essence of her story is that she's very close to her mother and she's following in her mother's footsteps. And she stops and talks to us 
and lays out all this personal information inside of 60 seconds of us encountering her and four minutes of her us being there, I bet we knew more about who she was as a human being in those three minutes than all of her customers and a vast majority of the people that work with her. And this guy gets this look on his face like, holy cow. Wow. Here's here's this, the floodgates of information about her as a human being just are gushing in front of us. Mm -hmm. And when she walked away, I said, yeah, man, I told you this (laughs) stuff works. (laughs) (laughs) That's just fascinating because I can see the connection between negotiation and sales. It's black and white. Then you can see, I mean, you're talking about even a doctor with a bedside manner that makes patients feel that he cares about them. You're also talking about negotiating in challenging situations where somebody else is hearing, feeling heard, feeling listened to. How do you go from that position of recognizing what they want and vocalizing what they want to what you want? Well, you know, first of all, you give the deal an opportunity to make itself. And that's what the application of empathy does. And whatever the percentage of time that that works, it's worth letting it see if it happens. If it's 2%, my gut instinct is the deal will make itself about 30% of the time. Mm. But let's say it's only 2%. That 2% is worth it. Yeah. And then having put yourself in a position where you have maximum influence and maximum cooperation from the other side, probably you're going to proceed with one of two things. You're going to say, how do we work on this together? How do we solve it? It's going to be a how or what question. Those are deferential questions. If they haven't given you a specific game plan, you could also say something like, seems like you probably got some ideas on how we could work together. I mean, that word choice and that tonality have to be exactly like that. You know, those are encouraging and deferential. The power from deference is insane. The influence power of deference works with everybody that you interact with, and it's an insane amount of influence. And we and we love stuff that works with everybody. So you want to lay it on them as many times as possible because, you know, one of our descriptions of negotiation is it's the art of letting the other side have your way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, how do you have, how do they have your way? You got to let them talk themselves into it. You know, you got to, they start to run out ideas and then you express, if it's, if it's not a good idea, you simply gently express reservations. Gently is, is important, but they get, become encouraged and they will talk themselves into your deal if you give them a chance. And while that seems ridiculously inefficient, it will lengthen your negotiation and shorten your implementation. I love that you pointed that out in your book as well. And that sometimes slowing down that does seem counterintuitive is actually speeding up. And so I just want to highlight what you said again. You said it will lengthen the negotiation and shorten the implementation. Right. And implementation, you know, a negotiation might be a couple of days, a couple of weeks. Implementation is months to forever. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, uh, any any deal takes much longer to implement than it does to negotiate. Oh, yes. So that's where you add profit back into your business on your implementation. I love it because if if somebody agrees, and there's a couple concepts I'll just wrap in really quick before we um, work towards a close, but 
you talk about a few things. If somebody's saying you're right versus that's right, you want them to say that's right. You want the agreement to happen so that implementation actually happens. I mean, you don't just want them to say yes and then get to a position where they don't follow through or they don't commit to what they said yes to. And you also talk about them not, you not wanting to get them to say yes, but getting them to say no instead. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, short, um, somebody says you're right, then your implementation is going to be a train wreck. It's going to be a mess. It's going to be ugly. It's going to be painful. Because you're right is what people say to you when they're tired of you talking. They just want you to shut up. It's a ridiculously way to get the other side to stop talking. (laughs) That's right is what they say when you are on the same sheet of music. And that's right is either if they're big that's rights and they're little that's rights, but you are always on the same sheet of music. And so that's right is your indicator. Your implementation is going to go really well. Mm-hmm. Or that when it, if there is a problem that you can fix it easily because that's right says we're on the same sheet of music and that's when you can problem solve with ease or your implementation goes with ease. And, it does not go that way with your right. Your right is a precursor to the train wreck. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the whole yes, no dynamic. I mean, if it's important, we simply change our questions where the answer is no. I don't say, do you dis- do you agree? I say, do you disagree? I don't say, would this work for you? I say, is this a ridiculous to think that it would work for you? And so, Very subtle change, but... And, and all the difference in the world. I mean, massive difference. Um, and can you explain why you want them to say no instead of saying yes? Because people feel safe when they say no. They feel protected. They feel like, and having felt safe and protected, they can give you clear answers. They don't feel commitment. Commitment causes concern, confusion, distraction. What are we getting ourselves in for? What have we forgotten about? You know, what's the land? What's the landmine that we we don't that we're getting ready to step on? That all comes when you think when you get ready to say yes. You're like, what am I not seeing here? What's the hook? What's the catch? You never think that when you say no, and that's why you get clear headed thinking after people say no. Boy, Chris, I if I didn't take anything else away from this podcast, that one thing is going to help me tremendously. I have something that I've used over the years, and I'm, it, it kind of sparked when I'm trying to train other uh, advisors or coach other advisors. They often say to a, a person, uh, do you understand or do you, do you understand this? And I always try to stay away from that because it puts the emphasis on that person, and they seem, they seem actually stupid to say, no, I don't understand it. So I try to put the emphasis back on me, and I say, did I explain that okay? Is, is that a good way of doing it? Or do you have another way that you could actually help me with, with uh, when you're explaining a concept and you want to make sure the other person is understanding it? Yeah, you know, um, and that's a, that's a great insight because if you say, do you understand to somebody, they're scared to say no. They're, right. they're afraid mm-hmm. they're going to make themselves look stupid and they'd be horrified at that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, mm-hmm. embarrassment is like the single People would die rather than being embarrassed. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I've ever accident, ever accidentally embarrassed somebody, I mean, they people they've never gotten over it. I get I get students from my different classes. You know, if they came walking in late, if I said something to them about being late, I mean, they never got over it. Embarrassment is huge. So yeah, you, you your your emotional intelligence to be concerned and leery of embarrassment is 
a thousand percent on the money. Great. So we'll, we'll typically say, we'll take it even further. I mean, we'll say something like, what about what I said didn't make sense? Um, you know, what doesn't, what doesn't work for you here? Where are the problems? Which parts of this are you against? I mean, uh, people feel uh, freer to answer those sorts of questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and you really need to know that anyway. I mean, you're driving, nothing is perfect. So you could say that, you know, there has to be problems with what I said. I mean, actively let them know that probably if they, if they don't object, they failed. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. I like that because then it makes them free to bring up the objection and probably feel smarter for bringing up the objection rather than feeling like it's undesired in the conversation or unwanted or that it's not allowed. It's one of the things that people use to really accelerate their outcomes in a really much more efficient way by focusing on that. You know, what doesn't work here? What, you know, how's this going to break down? Uh, This is powerful. And I know that there's so much more that you pack into the book. And so I just, I, um, I mean, we could go on and on and on and talking about so many different things. I do want you to mention mirroring really quick because this is really powerful as well. Can you talk about that? It's so stupid. I mean, this is not the body language mirror. This is not the tone of voice mirror. The hostage negotiators mirror is simply repeating the last one to three ish words of what someone has just said. And nobody believes that works until they start trying it in their small stakes conversations. And it is the simplest way to become the most interesting person in the room. I mean, it is- Most it, interesting person in the room? Well, the most interesting person <laughs> in the room, of course. People love talk. Oh, look at you. You just married me. <laughs> I was waiting for you no- to notice. That's How awesome. dare you? <laughs> I'm learning. I love it. Yeah, love it's, it. it's insane. It's some, some of our smartest people love the mirror because it is so stupidly simple. They're utterly fascinated with something that's that simple and they're so smart. I mean, they absolutely love it. That's awesome. Well, I know that you are great at what you do in business as well as in negotiation and negotiation training. Can you tell us your business name is the Black Swan LTD? Um, talk to us a little bit about what negotiation training and coaching you offer for individuals and businesses and how somebody would connect with you, get the book, follow your work or work with you. All right. The, the best way to access everything the Black Swan Group has is through a negotiation newsletter. Come, it's complimentary. It's free. If it's free, I'll take three. Love so, it. and it's, there's a, it comes out every Tuesday morning. It's a short and sweet article. It's a very concise read. It's actionable specific ideas. The best way to- You're talking to business people right there. (laughs) Short and sweet, actionable. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Easy to absorb. Best way to subscribe to uh, the newsletters. We have a text to sign up function. The number you text to is 228-28 and it's 22-828. The message you send is FBI empathy, all one word. Your spell check is going to want to put a space in there. FBI empathy, all one word. Case does not matter. Send FBI empathy, one word, to 22828. You get a response back. Ask for your email address. Sign up for the newsletter. The newsletter is the gateway to everything. Uh, We have training announcements. We have a lot of free material, a lot of free content. The newsletters will take you to the website. They're back all the previous newsletter articles. You can Google whatever your topic is. You can do a search, salary negotiation, everything. 
Um, also on the website, which is blackswanltd.com. We've got a lot more information about trainings for companies, for individuals. We got free downloads there. There's PDFs. There's a, there's a, um, a, a sort of a, a working, uh, sheet to help supplement. Um, and I'm not using the right term, but for the book, you know, there's a lot of supplemental material. There's a lot of stuff we have for free. If you read the book and you subscribe to the newsletter, you will make a difference in all of your negotiations and in all of your collaboration. I love that. And I, I can definitely see why somebody might want to work with you further if they had a team that they were um, trying to figure out how to do better negotiations or they wanted their sales department to work with you. And so I'm sure that um, there's a huge amount of need for you in the business world, as well as I know you do work in law enforcement and government as well. But so, our, our focus is really in, in the business community and it's we train and we coach and we are training. We are coaching somebody through a negotiation right now with one of the sharks from Shark Tank. Oh, nice. Nice. That's a good plug there. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here, Chris, and just for sharing your life's work. Thank you for uh, making this a huge deal and a huge passion of yours so that you can help so many people improve. And I, I just love hearing that go-giver um, in you as you're talking about all of these free resources as well and just wanting to improve people's lives. And I know that as they see that value, I'm sure that they will self-select and not be open-minded by the time they talk to you because they'll already know that they want to work with you. So you're doing a great <laughs> job there. Um, Thank you very much. Yeah. Is there anything you want to share in closing about how you are building a life and business that you love? You know, I'm, we're really focusing on, on, on our team. We're focusing on, we believe it's an abundant world. You know, we're making our team better. Um, a book that has really got me thinking about a lot of stuff, uh, The Culture Code by da Daniel Coyle is a great book on building a company's culture. It's a fantastic book. I think I've heard of that one. That's great. You know, we believe that it's an abundant world. You know, not everybody out there that wants to do business with you, but, you know, 350 people, million people in the U.S., 1% of those is a lot of folks. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Find your tribe. Yeah. That's excellent. Well, thank you so much, Chris, for being with us on the show today. Thank you, Chris. Sincerely appreciate you and your work. Right, thanks for having me on. My pleasure. In closing, remember, success leaves clues. So model the successful few, not the crowd, and build a life and business you love. Do you have an established business and make great income, but feel like you can never get ahead or just plain have financial confusion? Get the business owner's three-step roadmap to achieve time and financial freedom without working harder or sacrificing your lifestyle. Go to themoneyadvantage.com slash roadmap to get your roadmap and free training. And when you register, you'll also get access to our ultimate money finder cheat sheet that you can use to recover lost cash flow and save on taxes. Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on themoneyadvantage.com. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. 
The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. Securities offered through Kalos Capital Incorporated, member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and investment advisory services offered through Kalos Management Incorporated, and registered investment advisor, both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Kalos Capital Incorporated or Kalos Management Incorporated.